And what's up, everybody? Coming to you live from my parents' house. Once again, episode 25 and a half. Uh, surprisingly, you're getting a half episode this time because, oh well, my computer died and I had to go back and recharge it and wait a few hours. But I'm here, I'm back, and I thought I'd finish the show because I felt like on episode why did I say 25 and a half? It's 22 and a half. My bad. Um, 22 and a half. But I felt like on uh, at, towards the tail end of that episode there, I wasn't able to really give you guys an appropriate explanation as to the Russia-Ukraine stuff. So I thought we'd get right into that. And then I got one more topic because I have an extended battery life now. So we should be able to talk about that as well. So let's get right into this. Should be about 20 minutes uh, and I'll let you guys go here. Um, Russia and Ukraine. Let's talk about this for a second, because I know it's been in the news recently uh, since Joe Biden like ended up deploying those troops. I think it was about uh, I forget the exact number. Don't have it right off the top of my head. But uh, Joe Biden did deploy a significant number of troops, but not into Ukraine. I think this is the common misconception we have here. I see a lot of news articles. I see a lot of people saying that Joe Biden is deploying troops into Ukraine. No, this is not true. Joe Biden is deploying troops to Eastern European countries, not Ukraine, particularly not Ukraine. The countries he has deployed troops to include Poland, Germany, and Romania as of right now. So as of right now, we're looking at Poland, Germany, Germany, and Romania as the three countries that Joe Biden has deployed troops into. Um, and Biden is basically saying by deploying these troops, he's he's not directly saying this in comments, but he's kind of showing through these moves that Vladimir Putin, he's kind of showing Vladimir Putin that the United States is basically ready to defend Ukraine at any moment, basically uh, telling the Russian troops that if they you know, happen to invade Ukraine, which Joe Biden has been on the record saying that will probably happen. Uh, they, the United States will be ready to back Ukraine up if the situation is escalated to a more serious matter. I don't believe the United States right now views Ukraine and this uh, border crisis between Russia and Ukraine as something serious, but we'll see kind of how, how it happens. In my opinion, though, I think this is a global conflict that could get bad very, very quickly. Um, Russia, listen, Russia is a ticking time bomb. You have two, the way I look at the world and particularly like Europe and Asia is that there's a few ticking time bombs within, you know, kind of this uh, scape of the world that we have. And you probably know those ticking time bombs. I think one of them is North Korea. Okay. The other one is China and the other one is, and then the third one is Russia. Any one of those three countries makes an erratic move, suddenly the whole world should be worried because you are you are dealing with some of the most volatile politicians in the world. But not only the most volatile politicians in the world, you're dealing with some irrational decision makers. And when you get irrational decision makers into these positions of power, things could get very frisky very quickly. And this that's where I believe that if Vladimir Putin decides to make the wrong move here and maybe goes after, in my opinion, makes the wrong move and goes after Ukraine, this could turn into an international conflict very, very fast. OK, so what's the background behind Russia and Ukraine? Let's get into that first. The U.N. Security Council, which is basically the group, a group uh, in the United Nations of the most powerful arguably most powerful nations when it was created post-World War II, um, they basically have been unable to come to an agreement on what to do internationally. So they are struggling to come up with an agreement. Joe Biden, uh, the American president, as you guys know, has apparently been trying to just be diplomatic. He's been on calls with the Ukrainian president. 
Vladimir Putin. Nothing has worked, obviously, as of right now. The Russian troops kind of stand pat right now at the Ukrainian border. They haven't invaded as of uh, whatever the date is, I think February 4th today. But the tensions have been growing higher and higher. And basically, Russia has put the ball in America's court and said, "Okay, we're here. We can invade at any moment we want. We have several thousands of troops waiting at the border to just, you know, start to slowly take over Ukraine. Uh, Or not take over Ukraine, but we, we have several thousand troops just standing pat here at the border. So do with that what you will. It's kind of a power move on Russia's part. And Ukraine has gone on the record and basically requested foreign support from various Western allies, including NATO allies, as well as America. So this is the first time in a while that Ukraine has actually gone on the record and requested foreign support, which is kind of insane if you want to think about it that way. Um, And right now, the situation is basically it's a tense border situation. You have a bunch of Russian troops gathered at the Ukrainian border. They haven't really done anything quite yet. But it could very well get bad very, very quickly. Jen Paskey, who's the White House press secretary, and the White House want to keep this narrative going that it's Putin versus the world. And in part, they're not wrong. It really is Vladimir Putin versus the world to a certain extent. Like, this is this is a really, really bad situation. And obviously, Vladimir Putin has been an irrational decision maker who has made very questionable decisions here in the past, you know, 10, 15 years since he's basically been president of Russia in 2004. This is not looking good. So if the United States does uh, theoretically align with Ukraine, which is expected to happen, it could become a Cold War-esque type of conflict where the way I think about it is like the Cold War was a war that was fought between two countries in other countries, right? Like Korea and Vietnam happened because Russia and the United States were secretly fighting each other, but they didn't want to fight each other. They didn't want to invade each other's countries. So they used other wars to fight each other. And that's basically what happened, right? Um, and I think that's that could potentially happen in Ukraine here again, which would be very, very sad because a lot of innocent civilians' lives would be lost. But we, I want to hope it doesn't get to that point of like full-on war. I don't think it will, but we will see. In terms of the issues with like Russia and Ukraine, I guess you can think about it like this. Ukraine is kind of like the little brother to Russia right? It's always, it's, it's very much in this monstrosity of a country's shadow. They've never really been able to escape it. The cultures are similar. Uh, they're, you know, kind of the little brother in a lot of ways. Economically, they aren't as relevant. They're, you know, they're, they're a solid country. They're a first world country, obviously they're a first world country within Eastern Europe, but they're not the massive power that Russia really is. It's just the truth of the matter. And the, the issue of being the little brother and being kind of this uh, sort of pushover of a country has gone back to like medieval Europe. I'm talking like nine, the 900s and like, you know, 1011 and like shit like that. Like this goes way, way back. And there's a lot of history, a lot of historical battles of various countries in various empires uh, in annexing and making Ukraine a part of their part of their empire, which is a reason why their culture is so uh, contains a lot of Eastern European influences from various other countries and not just Russia, Russia obviously being the majority. Um, but besides the thousands of years of history, you know, uh, countries have taken over Ukraine for years and it's they've treated their people absolutely horribly. I'm going to kind of go through that history right now in, in a few seconds here uh, after I talk about this. Uh, Kremlin officials 
have gone on the this is very odd this doesn't happen within society i want to make this very clear kremlin officials have basically gone on the record and said that ukrainians are russians and they don't doubt it that's like if joe biden went on the record today and said mexicans are americans and we basically don't feel any way about their country and we you know like they basically disrespect everything about ukrainian culture kremlin officials have and they've gone public on the record you can look this up this is on news this is on the news this is on everywhere so the disrespect that russia has towards ukraine is obviously very evidently clear um and the way that i like to equate ukraine in kind of like an international sense i've talked a lot about afghanistan on this show and ukraine is very much like afghanistan it's the afghanistan of eastern europe and a lot of european powers have or sorry, uh, and a lot of like, you know, Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Russia, a lot of powers have had their various influence in their time controlling Ukraine. Ukraine has been independent for a very limited amount of time. And it basically first got its independence at the end of World War One, when the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell apart and the Russian Empire also collapsed, uh, leading to Basically, Ukraine being its own being its own independent nation for the first time. Actually, a lot of um, countries got their independence after World War One because a lot of empires collapsed. So a lot of like f newly formed nation states basically began to take place. But Ukrainian independence, as in its history, didn't really last long because Poland invaded. And then eventually after that, Ukraine basically became a part of the Soviet Union once again. So. Uh, you know, their lack of affiliation with Russia, basically just like, you know, within five years, they were right back in it, right back part of Russia, right back part of the Soviet Union, you know, back then. Um, and then, then you have the 1930s, right? So you have the period before World War II. And that's when Joseph Stalin was in charge of the Soviet Union. As you guys know, Joseph Stalin was a horrible leader, uh, did a lot of terrible things. And one of those terrible things that he did was he had mass executions, particularly uh, focused on Ukrainian peasants because Ukrainian peasants were actually one of the groups that refused to take part in Joseph Stalin's five-year plans, which involved like mass amounts of, you know, farming and basically just like constant economic output and growth. And Ukrainian peasants, uh, you know, a, a lot of them didn't take part. And uh, Joseph Stalin basically went and executed all of them uh, or a lot of them. Um, and, you know, if they didn't want to take part of the Russian economy, he got rid of them. Uh, there was also various other reasons why uh, you could definitely take a delve into Joseph Stalin's time uh, and his relationship with Ukraine. That is a whole separate other narrative within this uh, very long history between these two countries. Um, but yeah, Joseph Stalin definitely had his say within that period of time. Then you fast forward to World War II. The Ukraine was eventually invaded by Nazi Germany. Um, and... Basically, a lot of Ukrainians did fight for the Soviets, but it ended up like basically decimating the population. I think one uh, one sixth of the population was dead after World War Two. And I know this is a pretty common statistic in a lot of European countries. A lot of uh, casualties took place because a lot of people, basically every country uh, in the world fought in World War Two, except for, I believe, Switzerland and Austria, I want to say. I think those are the two. Um, but yeah, a lot of countries were fighting and a lot of European countries took massive casualties in terms of their overall, um, you know, population. You know, I think Poland was also one of those countries that did as well, uh, amongst others as well. But Ukraine also had a massive hit when it came to its population. 
So fast forward through the Cold War, you know, you have the United States and Russia going at it back and forth. And then eventually, or the Soviet Union back then, uh, and eventually they got their independence, Ukraine got their independence from the Soviet Union back in 1991. So finally, Ukraine in the modern era sort of has its evidence, sort of has its independence and it's free for the first time. So during that time uh, of independence, during this time, Ukraine sort of in the early 90s very much solidifies their alliance with NATO and the US and other like West, several Western foreign powers. So basically, like they they got their backing, they got their um, they got their butts covered with, you know, very significant Western powers. Then after that. You got you got Russia again. They're, they're always going to be there. You know, they're the country right above. They're the big brother. And Russia has continued since 1991 to intervene in their elections. And they've managed, they've somehow managed to get politicians of their interest, people that they back, people that back Russian interests to the forefront and, you know, get politicians in Ukrainian elections who are pro-Kremlin. So people who are going to work with Russia and work with Russia's best interests. They're basically intervening in Ukrainian elections to a certain extent. I don't know what that extent is. I haven't really done enough research to be able to comment on that. But the most evident example of Russian sort of intervention takes place in, with the Orange Revolution back in 2004. So for those of you that don't know the Orange Revolution, I'm going to explain it real quick. There were two candidates in this kind of Ukrainian democratic election. There was this guy, Yushchenko who is, and sorry if I'm butchering these names, by the way, Yushchenko was basically a Western-facing candidate, someone who wanted to work with the West, you know, with Ukraine's allies that they'd established back in the 90s, et cetera, et cetera, and someone who was very Western and progressive uh, in terms of his ideals. Um, and then you had Yanukovych, who was the preferred Kremlin candidate and was also backed by the previous prime minister of Ukraine. So he had some sort of clout when it came to that. Um, so you have those two kind of going at it in this election. The election essentially, whether you like it or not, becomes another sort of Western versus uh, Soviet Union sort of battle. And they duke it out. And there ends up being a lot of flawed voting. So there's a lot of like voting that turns out to be fraud. And, you know, there's uh, it's deemed that Russia has somehow intervened in this election. And basically... In the first two rounds of the election, uh, so the first two rounds, what I mean by that is they ran, they ran the election for the first time. They deemed that there was some error, and then they ran it again for a second time, and they deemed there was another era, error. And it basically, both times, this guy Yanukovych, the Russian candidate, ended up winning by, I believe it was a nine to ten percent margin both times. So he ends up winning both times. But then protesters in Ukraine knew that something was up and they ended up wearing orange and they took to the streets and they, you know, used their voice in a lot of protests. And basically that's what ended up being the orange revolution is Ukrainian citizens said enough is enough. Let's get another revote because these revotes are clearly not fair. And so fast forward, they revote again and Yushchenko ends up winning, who's the Western facing candidate. And that pisses Russia off. 2004, the Orange Revolution was kind of the catalyst of Russia continuing to be mad. It was sort of the towards the beginning of Vladimir Putin's presidential tenure. And you kind of started to see it sort of continue through there. So basically what we see here with Russia and Ukraine right now, let's take it back to 2022, what we're seeing the conflict here. It's the latest chapter in this big brother trying to absorb the younger one. Back in 2014, Russia, you know, illegally, obviously, as many of you probably know, annexed Crimea, 
which is a territory within Ukraine. And, you know, a, but a lot of people internationally still recognize that Crimea is independent and it belongs to Ukraine and all of this stuff. Uh, but it was very, that was, you know, another chapter within this crazy rivalry between these two countries. Um, and, you know, what this is, is if Russia kind of ends up absorbing Ukraine, absorbing Ukraine here, I think it's kind of crazy to think that Russia is suddenly an empire again. Um, again, I don't expect them to absorb Ukraine. I think if they were to, you know, even attempt to do that, they would have a lot of foreign troops they'd have to answer to. Um, but you have a country in Russia that has tremendous access to nuclear weapons. And I think nuclear weapons are the thing that scares me the most in this situation. We're not in 1976 anymore. This isn't the Vietnam era where you're only fighting with soldiers and guns and bombs. You're fighting with nuclear weapons. And if a nuke and a nuclear weapon besides Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in 1945 has not been fired within the course of war, they've been tested uh, in various islands throughout planet earth. They've been, you know, there've been nuclear reactor leaks in Japan due to natural disasters, but they have never been used in war. But the second a nuclear weapon gets used in war, whether that be Russia whether that be China, whether that be North Korea, because all these three countries, they have erratic leaders and they have leaders who have decision-making issues uh, that could make a decision on a whim who are unpredictable. They press the trigger buttons on those nuclear weapons. You're looking at a potential crazy situation in the world. You're looking at potentially a World War III. I know I'm not trying to freak anybody out. I know that's a buzzword and all that, and that's very unlikely to happen, but... We're at the era where, like, if a country gets really pissed off, they can easily press their nuclear codes and boom, you're looking at a whole different picture of the world. It's almost happened. It's almost happened. It almost happened in 1961 in with the Cuban Missile Crisis. That almost happened. I mean, Nikita Khrushchev and John F. Kennedy were getting ready to press the nuclear codes and basically blow up the world. It was the hottest the Cold War was. And then it cooled down. You know, diplomacy and... Just talking it out, cooled everything down. But here we are, 2022, we're Russia and Ukraine. This is something that could, you know, to monitor. You have to monitor. When it comes to, again, I'm going to point this out again. When it comes to the three erratic decision makers in the world, Russia, China, and North Korea, you got to watch out because anything can happen at any moment. And when it hits Dubcon, when it hits con four, <laughs> when it hits con five, you got it. Yeah. When it, when it gets scary, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you because def con four, <laughs> def con four. I don't know, dude. It Nuclear war is, is close. Uh, in this situation, in my opinion, and, and that scares me. I, I was just reading more and more about it, and I, I get more concerned the more I read about it, to be honest. So, whew, I know it's a lot. I know this Russia-Ukraine thing is a lot. I'm not personally saying that we're going to go to nuclear war or that Russia is going to go to nuclear war. I don't think they'll resort to that. I think the situation is going to kind of stay sort of, you know, little bits of violence here and there. But if it does get big, things could get really crazy. And this is why I always, always, always on my podcast suggest, please, for the love of God, all of you, every single one of you, just sit back, 
and actually watch international news and actually worry about other countries because there's a lot on the line with world events, whether it be, you know, it may be 3,500 miles away from your hometown, right? It may be 25, it may be, you know, oceans away, but in reality, effects that are happening across the world affect America. It's a ripple effect. It's what happens in the world. It's just kind of how the world works. So watch your international news, make a decision for yourself. But this Russia, Ukraine stuff is crazy. So I wanted to kind of put that out there and I wanted to give you guys a valid explanation. I, I, I really rushed it on the, on the show because it's again, my dead battery life, but I got to kind of give you the full explanation as to like what I wanted to say and everything I wanted to express. But I told you we have one more topic and I promise you that this will be a lot more fun and we're not going to talk about World War III because that's scary and that's freaking, you know, I don't want to talk about that. So let's talk about the miscellaneous topic that we missed on the Changavi show, which is transitioning between sports. I'm going to do this real quick. Uh, I know a lot of people don't give a shit. I think the, the main topic people really cared about was Russia, Ukraine, but the transition between sports, listen. The Niners, the 49ers made it all the way to the NFC Championship. I know I predicted them to go to the Super Bowl. Maybe that was the jinx. Maybe it was my dad commenting on my Facebook post on the Changavi show. Maybe it was him saying, oh my God, the Niners are bumped up playing in one weather. Super Bowl, they go. Maybe that was him. Maybe it was all him. Maybe he caused the San Francisco 49ers to lose. I don't know. Or maybe it was the fact that Joukowsky Tart dropped an interception. There's several different explanations. But the transition. It's been tough, okay? Um, but it's getting there. Yeah, my transition is getting there. You know, I've slowly been starting to look at the NBA standings, talking to my friends, catching up on some NBA stuff. Obviously, I've been, you know, watching the Warriors. Warriors have been killing it, 40 and 13 right now. Um, but going full-time into the Warriors right from like a Niner playoff run is tough. It takes a little bit of time. Um, last year was way mad easy. I mean, I, in November, we were packing it up for the Niners. We were like, all right, okay. Uh, Garoppolo, high ankle sprain, half the team out with COVID. Okay. Let's say bye-bye to the 49ers. We're going to move on to the actual team of the year, the Warriors. So that's what we did. And it was chilling and we were good. But then, but this year, the Niners weren't a lost cause and they were actually a couple of minutes away from the Super Bowl. And if they were in the Super Bowl, I probably wouldn't be in Warriors mode at this point. But that's the way the world works. You don't get everything you want. But I really do love uh, the Golden State Warriors this year, though. The way, I mean, I love them every year, but this year is a lot of fun. I like the bench. You know why? Because it reminds me of the bench that we had back in 2015, where you had a lot of veteran pieces, Leandro Barbosa. Right. Uh, you know, it reminds me of the days when we had Jarrett Jack as the developmental or not the developmental, but like the veteran point guard. Right. I love having Andre Iguodala back uh, playing off the bench. We got Otto Porter Jr. Jordan Poole coming off the bench now that Clay's back, you know. Um, Chris, I mean, not Chris Keza, but uh, GP2, who's been an absolute stud this year on the defensive side of the floor. Like this team is deep. This team can compete guy for guy. They have nine, 10 man rotations, which is what you need in the playoffs. You're competing. Con like when you get to the playoff level of basketball, it doesn't matter as to like how top heavy your team is because Stephen LeBron can only go what 34, 35, 36 minutes a night. You can't have these guys going, you know, um, it's really nice, basically. Like, I mean, Steph, they were able to do it last year in the play-in, but you saw what an eight-man rotation does. Steph's playing 42 minutes a night. He's exhausted by the second game of the play-in tournament, and they lose, right? But now you have the ability to, like, rest Steph for way longer because you have guys that you trust 
like Jordan Poole. You have Klay Thompson back and healthy. Potentially, you'll have James Wiseman coming back as well. That you have guys like Otto Porter. You have guys like GP2. You know, guys who are great on the defensive side of the floor and also can get you a bucket when the rest of your team can't. And that is, I think, the, the the most integral part here for the Warriors this season to watch is the fact that our bench is just deeper than ever. And you have these two young guys, Moses Moody and Jonathan Kuminga, who aren't getting much run, right? They're not starting. So, like, they're not looked at as, like, rookies of the year right now or, like, people who are putting up big numbers. But the fact is simple. Moses Moody and Jonathan Kuminga are amongst, like, two of the best rookies in this class because... They may not, again, like I said, they may not have the stats. They may not have the 25 points a game that, you know, maybe a Scotty Barnes or a Josh Giddy is getting, you know, playing, or Josh Giddy is getting, right? Playing for a crappy Oklahoma City team where you're, you know, you're getting 35 minutes a night. They may not have those numbers, but the raw potential that they're showing, listen, they may not become, you know, the clutch stars in the playoffs, but for the future, you're building for the future, but you're also competing for a championship. And not very many NBA teams, let me tell you something, are are doing both those things successfully right now. So shout out to the Golden State Warriors, 40 and 13. I'm excited. Clay's back. They got great depth. This team looks deeper than ever. It looks healthier than ever right now. And it looks like a, and I really hope I didn't put a jinx on it. And they look damn good. And Draymond looks like he's having a kind of a career vitalization right now. You have uh, Clayback, who's surprisingly in way better form than I expected him to be in. You got Steph, who's in a little bit of a slump, but you know, the great ones always get in a slump, but they'll come back. I'm excited. I'm excited. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, expect way more Warriors content, not only on TikTok, but on it, but on Instagram. But on this podcast, it's going to happen. The Golden State Warriors season is officially started. I only like to think the Warriors season has started when the Niners season has ended. That's just the way it works in my head. For those of you that are like purely basketball fans, yeah, the Warriors season started game one, right? Obviously. But the basketball, the Warriors season truly really did start like as soon as the NFC championship ended. That's when the Warriors season in my mind started. But I'm excited. The Golden State Warriors, we're almost at the All-Star break, 40 and 13. This is a great team. Uh, they got they got all sorts of great guys, and I think they're deeper than ever. And I'm really excited to see what they do this year. Expect more Warriors content. Expect me to be more tuned into the season, more tapped into basketball. I'm pumped. But anyway, signing off from my parents' house like five hours after I recorded the Changavi Show, episode 22. This is episode 22.5. Signing off Anuj Changavi from his parents' house here in the Bay Area. I'll see y'all later. Um, next week, got more content coming. Probably an after show. Probably another show after that. So get pumped. I know this week was slacking, so sorry for uploading late. But if you guys enjoyed this episode, this half episode, please like and subscribe to the video. If you're on, uh, Like and subscribe to the channel. If you're on YouTube, like this video if you enjoyed it. If you're on Spotify, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you're on Apple Podcasts, feel free to give me that five-star review for my sexy-ass voice and for my beautiful explanation of the Russian and Ukrainian conflict. If you guys enjoyed any of this, please feel free to give me any advice, any critiques, anything, DM me anywhere, whatever works. I'm free. I'm here. Anyway, that's all I got for everybody. Uh, like I said, Anuch Changabi signing off from the parents' house in the Bay Area. I'm out, guys. Peace.